So if you brought a Bible with you, you can pull that out, and we're going to be in John 12 today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, no worries. Um, we, you can follow along with us here on the screen, or um, you can raise your hand and we'll get a Bible to you. Also, um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you can go out to our Connection Center and you can grab one. We've got some back there, and that's our gift to you just for coming today, just to say thank you for being here. Uh, but we are going to move into our, our Bible study, and we have been, uh, for months now, walking just week by week through the Gospel of John. And we find ourselves today at a really significant point in our journey. Our goal is week to week, we've been trying to uncover the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. Okay? Who is Jesus? You know, what, what did he come to do? What did he accomplish? And so we've been looking verse by verse through, through John 12, and we've been at it for a while now. This is week 35. All right? And we, we find ourselves at a significant point uh, in our study. We're, we're ending uh, uh, chapter 12. Okay? John, the Gospel of John is broken up into two sections, chapter 1 through 12 and chapters 13 through 21. Chapters 1 through 12, John gives us a detailed account of Jesus' public ministry. Okay? So what he taught, what he, you know, the, the claims that he made, all of the, the miracles that he did. John calls them signs because they're pointers to something. They're pointing, they're communicating something. Namely, they're pointing to uh, you know, who Jesus is as, as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Okay? So he did that three years of public ministry. That's, that's detailed for us in chapters 1 through 12. We end that today. We're finishing that today. Section 2 of the Gospel of John is all about Jesus' private ministry. The last handful of hours that he has with his disciples, John gives it to us in detail. And I'm really excited about moving into this next section of Scripture. Because when you only have a few hours left or a couple of days left, you don't waste any time. Right? You're not wasting any time. You're not mincing words. You're getting down to the heart of it. And so the next several months leading up into Easter, we're going to be looking through chapters 13 through 21. And we're going to look at what Jesus, you know, his, his final commands to his disciples and his, his prayer to the Father for the disciples and for us. He also prays for the future disciples. Um, and, 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 and then on into his death and resurrection. So today we finish chapter 12. And so what John gives us in these last 15 verses that we're going to look at is kind of a summary of Jesus's message, especially the last six or seven verses, John really sums up what Jesus said in three years. And so this is a pretty uh, powerful uh, passage of scripture. That being said, before we dive in, can I, can I give one warning? Can I give you just one warning? Um, what we're going to look at today uh, is a little bit tough. It's been a tough one to study. It's been a tough one to prepare a, a message, and it's probably going to be a little tough to hear. Um, but because we are committed to go verse by verse through the gospel of John, we're going to cover it. Um, uh, it, this, these are probably some of the saddest, some, some of the most difficult words in all of the Gospel of John. But here's what I can say, especially if you're new here today, you're, you've kind of come on a bit of a tough day. Um, but I'm glad you're here because, listen, Jesus doesn't tell us sad things to make us sad. He doesn't tell us sad things. Jesus tells us sad things actually to make us glad. They are meant for our joy. But sometimes we have to hear the dark things to see the light. Um, John Piper put it like this. He said, The dark things in the Bible are spoken for the sake of light. The ugly things are spoken for the sake of beauty. The painful things are spoken for the sake of comfort. And the sorrowful things are spoken for the sake of joy. You know why he can say that? You know why I, I can say that with confidence? It's because in John chapter 15, Jesus says that the words that he spoke were, that our, uh, were spoken that our joy may be full. He spoke what he spoke so that our joy may be full. So my prayer has been... Um, this week, that each of us will see this passage for what it is, that though there might be some dark and difficult things that we may need to cover, that ultimately it is for our joy. That each one of us, whether we're new, whether we've been here since day one, that each one of us would walk out of this room and in just a little bit, not discouraged, not in despair, but ultimately full of joy and full of peace and full of hope and full of the life that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. 
So, that being said, um, that's what I've been praying for this week, and I'm going to pray for it one more time. Okay, can we bow our heads and can we pray before we dive in? Lord, we are really grateful for your word, even the difficult stuff. God, you are so gracious to, to have entered into our world and spoken to us uh, to reveal yourself, to, to, to give us your word, God, that we might uh, see. Because the reality is, God, as you're going to tell us, we're blind and we're without direction. And we need to see. And it, we, can only see the, we can only walk in the light because you, the light of the world, have come. And so, God, we, th- we do thank you. Even though this is difficult to cover, God, we do thank you for what you're going to say. And I pray, Father, that according to your mercy, that your spirit would open up our hearts, open up our eyes, open up our minds to receive what you want to speak to us today, and that we would respond to you in faith. I pray for every single person here, God. You know why we're here. You know, um, you, you know our journeys. You know the things that we're facing, the, the, the obstacles in our way of, of um, surrendering completely to you. And so, God, I just pray that you would speak to each one of us and you'd rip those out, out of the way today. By your mercy, Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit here that binds us together, that enlightens our eyes. Uh, Please move in power today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. John chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 35. Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So Jesus, uh, as I was just praying, he comes back to this really common theme uh, that we find in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. We find this all throughout the 12 chapters, all the way back to the very first chapter, back when John first introduces us to Jesus. John says in verse 4 of chapter 1, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, but here's where we find our first kind of tough statement. If you were to walk out to a person who doesn't know, you know anything about Christ and is far from God, and you were to tell them, hey, you're walking in darkness, that's a little offensive, is it not? But this is what Jesus just said. He says, this world is, is, is filled with darkness. You are walking in darkness. And he says in verse 35, because you're walking in darkness, you have no idea where you're going. You have no purpose. You have no meaning. You have no direction. Um, we can imagine what it would be like to live in perpetual darkness. As he said, we are blind. We'd have no sense of direction. We'd have no idea where we're going. We couldn't see others around us. Right? We'd feel isolated from others. We, we, we couldn't see ourselves. We'd forget eventually what we looked like. We'd lose our very identity. Explorers in the Arctic, we've talked about this before, explorers in the Arctic will tell you that the most maddening experience, the most frustrating, the most difficult experience of exploring the Arctic is not, in fact, the, the frigid temperatures. It's not the cold. It's living in utter darkness for months at a time. They, they say it's absolutely debilitating to live in darkness. And this is what Jesus says. He shows up saying, you're all living in darkness and you're disintegrating. It's debilitating. You're broken, you're helpless, you're homeless, and you have no idea where you're going. But the light has come. The light has come. He says, through me you'll have purpose. Through me you'll have direction. Through me you'll no longer be isolated. I'll I'll reconnect you in loving relationships, which is what you were created for. You'll experience a loving relationship with God again. You'll experience loving relationships with one another. And I think he's saying... You won't be able to hide anymore either. You know, he, he'll, he'll bring us into the light. He'll expose. When we're exposed, it, it's, it's, it's scary, isn't it? Because we just sang about it. We have stains. Then our stains are visible. 
But Jesus says, the light is among you, so walk in the light. Expose yourself because it's only then that I can cleanse you. It's only then that I can wash your stains away. He says, the light is among you for a little while, so believe in the light before the darkness overtakes you. He says, and I I think this is important, he says, walk while you have the light. Here's what I think this means. I don't think what he's uh, saying is, you've only got three days and then I'm, you know, on the cross and then I'm gone and you lost your chance because the Holy Spirit's coming. Lots of people come to know Jesus. Um, But here's what I think he means. I think he's saying that through the cross, every one of us have the opportunity to have the light of Christ shine in our hearts, but, but that opportunity will not always be available. That's a a tough statement, isn't it? It, that, That opportunity will not always be available. As William Barclay put it, he said, In life, all things must be done in time, or they will not be done at all. There, there is work which can, we can do only when we have the physical strength to do it. There is study which can be carried out only when our minds are keen enough. There are things which have to be said and done, or the time for saying and doing them is gone forever. And it is so with Jesus. The more a man lets himself become fixed in his ways, the harder it is to jerk himself out of them. But in Christ, the supreme blessedness is offered to men, but it must be grasped in time. If, if you're here today, maybe, and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that you hear what Jesus is saying. He, he's, hear the urgency of Christ's call. Because here's the reality. Time is limited. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. But for the Christians in this room, this same principle applies to us as well. Okay, the, 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 the brevity of time, or the brevity of our days on this earth. Time is not only short for entering into the Christian life, but time is also short for accomplishing the duties of the Christian life. Let me say that again. Please hear me. Time is not only short for entering into the Christian life, but also for accomplishing the duties of the Christian life. Okay? Stay with me. But granted, there are certain things that we're able to to do and to enjoy today that will continue on into eternity. Like, as we've been talking about, loving relationships. If the Bible is true, we not only get 40 or 50 years together, you're stuck with me for eternity right? We we are going to enjoy loving relationships on into eternity. Um, Worship, right? We get to, we just have been worshiping God, expressing our adoration and our love for God. We get to do that on into eternity. What the team just led us in is just a little taste of heaven, okay? We, We get to do that on into eternity. But there are certain things, certain tasks that we have been entrusted with as Christians that we can only, uh, accomplish and enjoy right here on earth in our brief sojourn here. For example, evangelism. This, this God-given privilege, this God-given um, duty that he has given to us as Christians can only be enjoyed and, and, and accomplished here in the, in the 90, 100 years or so that we each have. Okay? The, the, the privilege of being his voice to a dying world is brief. Are you missing out on the opportunity? Don't miss out on the opportunity to be his voice to a lost and a dying world. Or caring for the poor. There will be no more poor to care for. Right? That, that's a great thing. We're excited about that. Roxy was just quoting the scripture. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. There will be no more hunger. There will be no more thirst. There will be no more poor to care for. There will be no more needs. But today, there are. And are you missing out on the opportunity to be his hands and feet to those who are in need? Our days are short. How are you spending them? How am I spending the days on earth that God has given me? For some of us, this might mean simply living with open hands, looking for ways to be generous, looking for ways to serve others. But for some of us here, please, please hear me, for some of us here, this might mean something a little more focused, 
maybe, and this is something that I've been praying for, but maybe um, there are individuals or families in this room that God is calling into full-time missions. Is God calling you or your family to spread the gospel to a people who have never heard of the love of Christ? Would you be willing to pray and ask God if that's something he'd have for you? Maybe, maybe he's leading somebody in our church that we can raise up and support and send out to go out and preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. Full time. That's what I'm praying for. Another thing I've been praying for is that there might be some, um, several families in our church that would rise up uh, and, and, and answer the call to, to open up their homes to kids who are in need, in need of a loving, Christ-centered home. Would you consider, maybe, maybe it's the Lord leading you into adoption or, or into the foster care system. I mean, we have, thousands, we have over 1,000 kids in, in the, the foster system in Santa Clara County um, and, and an incredible deficit of homes that will actually be able to welcome them in and love them and care for them. Would you pray? Maybe, maybe there's something, again, maybe it's just you, you, you know, as, as, as Tom, uh, was, was, Tom Foley was here a few weeks ago and he was saying, and we're going out and make disciples as you're going, wherever you go. For some of us, it might just be here living with open hands, looking for ways to be generous, but for others, God might be calling you into something very specific. Are you listening? Okay. Are you praying and asking, God, what, what do you have for me? How do you want me to spend the very few brief days that I've got here on this earth? Maybe, just maybe, the Lord is leading you into to taking in foster kids. Um, and I might be a little biased on this here because I'm kind of saturated in that lately. Um, I was talking with a man at Starbucks this last uh, Friday morning about um, our journey in, in this process, my, my family's journey in, into foster care and then eventually into adoption, God willing. And this man is just a guy I've met at Starbucks over the last couple of years, and we just we were just chatting, and he knows I'm a Christian, but he he was sharing, you know, he's like, well, you know, Philip, I've got, you know, my fiance, we used to do foster care and did all this stuff, and look at all these challenges, you got to be thinking about all these things, he was kind of pushing back, and I was like, man, I, I, I hear your concerns, I really do, I'm not, I don't want to minimize the challenges that this is going to bring for my family, but I told him, I said, you know that I'm a Christian, and you know, and I told him, I said, this is what God has done for me. You know, number one, Jessica and I really feel like this is what the Lord is leading us to. We're, we're convinced in that. But second, I said, this is, this is who I am as a Christian. This is what God has done for me. When I was homeless, when I was helpless, and when I had all kinds of issues, not after I got my stuff together, right? But when I was homeless, and I was helpless, and I had all kinds of issues, Christ died for me, and he welcomed me into his family freely, freely. And now I get the chance to do that for someone else. Maybe, maybe the Lord is leading you something. How are you spending your few days on this earth. We have a very brief sojourn here. As we've said several times recently, we all have a use-by date, um, and I want to be completely used up by the time I expire, and I know you do too. Let's keep going. John says this, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And we'll stop there. All right, this is one of those sad statements that I warned you about. Um, Jesus pursued them, and they pursued them, and he pursued them, and he taught, and he poured himself out, and they most still rejected him. It's heartbreaking. If you remember back in John chapter 1, verse 11, when John first introduces us to Jesus, he says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
And for the last 12 chapters, we've seen that unfold. We've seen that flesh out. That's indeed what happens. Um, Jesus, for 12 chapters, has given sign after sign after sign. He's been teaching with this authority that just is mind-boggling to his listeners, this unprecedented clarity and authority. And his life is um, you know, beyond reproach. Several times, Jesus asks those who are accusing him. He says, point out sin in my life. T- tell me where I've sinned. And they're left speechless. They, they cannot point out wrongdoing in Jesus' life. He, he's he's, come, he, he's uh, preaching with authority. He's got a holy life. Um, he does all of these amazing miracles. Again, these signs. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He feeds the thousands. He commands nature, and it obeys him. Right? He, he raises people from the dead, and, and still they refuse to believe in him. And it's easy reading through the Gospels for us just to shake our heads and think, are you kidding me? How could you miss it? How could you miss it with all that he's done? How could you miss it? But we've seen it's not just this generation around Jesus uh, 2,000 years ago. We've seen throughout the scriptures that this is humanity. This is humanity. You see this very same reaction to God all throughout the Bible. And the perfect example is in Exodus. Uh, the, the story of Exodus is God delivering the Israelites you know, out of bondage to Egypt and on into the promised land. And if you've read Exodus, you'll know this God in these amazing, miraculous ways flexes his muscles, right, to the nation of, of Egypt. And he, he uh, frees the Israelites from their captors and he leads them out of Egypt. And um, we're told that as the Israelites are, are coming out of Egypt, that the, the Egyptian army, you know, they change their mind. And so they come charging, um, you know, the Egyptian army comes charging towards them. And so now they've got the Israelite nation. They're trapped on one side with the Red Sea to their back. And then they've got the Egyptian army come charging at them. And then they, you know, cry out to Moses, are you kidding me? Your God has led us out here to die. Your God is a fraud. You, you know, why did you do this? You, you're basically, you know, this is suicide. What does God do? Even though they uh, are questioning, having doubts and all that stuff, he opens the Red Sea, right? He parts the Red Sea. He just, you know, he opens it up. Parts, I mean, think about it. He parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites cross over on dry land. An unbelievable miracle, right? How many days from that point does it take for the Israelites to reject God again? To disbelieve? Three days. 70, they saw the water part. They walked through uh, the sea on dry land. 72 hours is how long it takes for them to utterly reject God again and say, your God is a fraud. You've led us out here to die. He can't take care of us. Moses, bring us back to Egypt. Three days. They say, you know, why? because they were thirsty. Okay? They were thirsty. Moses, you, you've let us out. There's nothing to drink. What does God do? He miraculously gives them water. He gives them a fresh water source, right? And this is this great miracle. What happens after that? Moses, we're hungry. You, we're hungry. Your God cannot take care of us. Your God's a fraud. We want to go back to Egypt. Take us back to Egypt. We reject you and your God. What does God do? He rains down bread from heaven. Literally every morning when they wake up, there's food on the front lawn. What happens next? Moses, we're tired of this bread. We want meat. We had meat in Egypt. We prefer to, to, to be slaves in Egypt than to be living under your God. Your God cannot take care of us the way that we want him to take care of us. We want meat. What does God do? He gives them meat. He, he, there's quail all over the ground, right? For miles, there's quail everywhere. He gives them meat. Okay, over and over and over. Finally, they make it to the promised land. I mean, they have just consistently rejected God. Now listen, here's what happens. They get to the promised land, and they say, we don't want to go in. We don't trust you and your God. You've let us out here to die. They're too big. They're going to kill us. We would rather go back the way we came. And then what happens? 
God says, okay. God said, okay. Ultimately, God, God pursued them, but ultimately, God gave them what they desired. He gave them chance after chance after chance after chance. Ultimately, God gave them over to their desires. He says, I've shown you sign after sign after sign. I've delivered you from captivity. I've provided for your every every need. I, I have guided your way. I have guarded your way. I have not left your side. I've been patient with you time and time again. But you still choose to reject me. Okay. And God gave them over uh, and, and, and basically let them wander around the wilderness blindly for the rest of their lives. This is what's happening here with Jesus in this generation. And unfortunately, this is what happens with so many today. And again, these are tough words from, from, from John, but here's the principle that we must understand. God pursues us. And by the way, if you're struggling with sin and you're thinking, God's abandoned me, he's just given me... Listen, I, there is sin in my life that I have struggled with for years and years and years. And you know what? I, when, I, when I struggle and when I begin to doubt God's patience and his faithfulness and his mercy, you know what I do? Is I go back and I read the Old Testament. So often we're told, hey, well, go read, you know, go read Romans 8 and go read some of these other parts. And stuff. Go read the Old Testament. That's the story of the Old Testament is God's patience and his faithfulness regardless of our faithlessness. Okay? I mean, that, that's the story. God is continually forgiving and he's patient and he's pursuing. Um, but eventually, God will give us over to our desires. If this is truly what we are seeking, God will honor our decisions. God continued to pursue that first generation of Israelites that he delivered over and over and over. But here's here's the reality. God will not force himself upon you. Our union with God must be consensual. Um, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He put it so well. Uh, He said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. I'm going to say that again. Those, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Um, God does not force himself upon us. In the end, God will honor the choice of every person. Um, which, by the way, can I just say, that's why we're so committed. Because God does honor our choices, that's why we're so committed. We're, we're constantly pushing and we're constantly uh, encouraging evangelism. That's why we're going to be a church that... Our primary focus is going to be reaching out to the lost rather than pampering the saved, okay? Because God honors the decision of, 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 of people, and so it's our goal to, to help people to see the glory of Jesus Christ. That's our goal every single week. That's what I pray for every week as we, as we worship today, as we, as, we, as we teach on Sunday mornings, is that God ultimately will be, be exalted and people will see that he is the choice, right? That he is the right choice. Anyway, let's keep going. John, John tells us that most folks just outright reject Jesus, regardless of the signs. But then John says in verse 42, there's another group of people. Verse 42, nevertheless, many, of, many even of the authorities believed in him, but, and that's one of the most tragic words in the English, English language, isn't it? All right, those three letters, but, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but, and by the way, may it never be said here, many of the folks at Twin Oaks Church believed in him, but, you know, Philip Pattison believed in Jesus, but, let's see what it was for the authorities. What, what was their but? Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man 
more than the glory that comes from God. Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear, and for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the question I've been asking myself this week, as I've been thinking about this passage, is, well, whom do I fear, and what is my greatest love? Whom do I fear? What do I fear? Is it the fear of man and love of the world, or is it do I fear God and do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Whom do you fear? What do you fear? And whom do you love? What's your greatest love? These authorities, they were, more, they were more afraid of offending others or offending themselves than they were of offending Jesus. They were, they were more afraid of offending others or offending themselves than they were of offending Jesus. One commentator, I think this might have been William Barclay as well, he said, these people were seeking to carry out the impossible. They were trying to be secret disciples. Secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms for either the secrecy kills the discipleship or the discipleship kills the secrecy. They lived a lie because they were not big enough to stand up for the truth. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ will cost you. It does cost. But the authorities were not willing to pay the price. They were not willing to give up the synagogue. They were not willing to give up the prestige. They were not willing to give up their place in society to, to uh, uh, show their allegiance and their um, devotion to Jesus Christ. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah intellectually, but it never moved to their heart. For if it moved to their heart, it would have changed them. And the question we have to ask is, has it changed us? Has our Christianity stayed at the intellectual level? You know, do we affirm, yes, do we affirm Jesus to be the Son of God mentally? Well, great, so do the demons. So do the demons. Have, have we let our, our, our belief in Jesus Christ move from our head to our heart? Because that is what we're called to do. We're called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If, if it has moved from your head to your heart, it, it will change you. It will begin to change the way you live and the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money and the way that you, you know, invest in your hobbies. Right? It, it will begin to change every aspect of your life. We say all the time, you, you know, you cannot pay for his love, but it will cost you everything. We cannot pay for his love. It's, it's a free gift, but it will cost us everything. And I know I say that every week. But it's because most weeks I forget it. And I think you might as well. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you do as well. But we cannot pay for his love, but it will cost us everything. As it's been said, we often assign the obligations of Christianity to a select few, while the privileges of Christianity are offered to all. Right? The obligations are just you know, a select few. You know, you get, whether you're paid staff or whether you're you know, one of the radical ones, uh, you know, the obligations are on you, but the privileges are offered to all. But Jesus, that's not the Christianity that Jesus preached. He said, if anyone would come after me, anyone, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after him. Uh, this is easy to talk about on a Sunday morning, and it's, and it's not too difficult to write on paper. It's difficult to, day in and day out, to, to live as that disciple, to take up that cross daily and follow after him. But the reality is, um, the reality is, I'm only going to speak for myself here. I can't speak for you. I'm going to speak for myself here. But when I take a step back and I realize just how much I have to battle, you know, my flesh and, and, and as, I, as I disobey the Lord or as I try to, to do whatever I can not to live openly or sacrificially for him, when I step back and I look at that, I realize just how absurd that is. Just how absurd it is. Um, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And yet for me, and I'm only speaking personally, but for me, I usually go kicking and screaming. Anyone else here with that? Giving up, letting go of those things. I usually go kicking and screaming. Um, I was reading parts of uh, David Platt's book, Radical, again this last week, and he said this. This statement hit me. He said, you know, God, God beckons storm clouds and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall and they obey immediately. 
He speaks to the mountains. You go there, and he says to the seas, you stop here, and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the creator until we get to you and me, and we have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no. You see the absurdity of it all? I mean, we, we look at these authorities and we think, man, if, if they know, I mean, you think about it, if they know that Jesus is the Messiah, this, this Messiah that has been promised for centuries, and he's the Son of God, how in the world could they not give up these petty little things like a synagogue? How could they not give up these things and declare their allegiance to him, if, even if it meant they lost their position and they lost their job? How, can, how could they not... Even if they lost their very lives, how could they not declare their allegiance to him? He is the pearl of great price. Sell it all. Buy that field because the treasure that is in that field outweighs anything you have now. How could they do it? How short-sighted must they have been? How foolish must they have been? But are we brave enough to see our reflection in the mirror? Again, I told you this is a painful passage. I warned you. Um, Maybe it's just for me, right? But I feel like God has just been yelling at me through a megaphone this week in this passage. I'm seeing what a picture um, of the grip that this world can have on me. What a picture of the grip that this world can have on me that I would not be willing to give up some of these petty things. It's interesting. I I was just telling Jessica on, I think it was Friday, that, you know, what what God's been revealing to me in my life lately, you're not supposed to deal with your junk, by the way, from the pulpit, um, but I'm just, I I do it all the time, but... um, uh, uh, God has just really been uh, uh, opening my eyes to how much I'm dominated by fear. Um, it, it's, it, I, I struggled, you know, making decisions and, um, in my, you know, even, even little things. Where are we going to eat? I don't know. I don't know. Where do you, you know, it's just whatever. Just this lack of decisiveness in my life, you know, and, and what it comes down to, whether it's the little things or the big things, it comes to fear. Fear of what? Well, fear of man because I want people to like me. I want you guys to like me. Okay, um, and I, I've, I've, I've told you guys before, um, one of the guys I look up to a lot, you guys know, is uh, a pastor out of New York City named Tim Keller. And, and he, one of the things he talked about early on in his ministry was he'd, he'd walk up on stage, and before he started his sermon, he would mutter under his breath. And people would often hear him, and they'd say, what are you muttering under your breath? And he'd say, well, I look out into the crowd, and he says, uh, to himself. Um, but looking out into the crowd, he's saying, you don't define me. And he had to say that before he went out and preached, because... It, the temptation was there because he feared man and because he loved the glory that comes from man. And that's really difficult for him. I pray against it every single week. You guys don't define me. You know what defines me? The love of God shown to me in Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. So I could fall flat on my face today. Um, I, the stool could come crumbling down again, right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't define me. I mean, if everybody goes home laughing at me, Ultimately, I am valued and I am loved. And it was proved to me, it was demonstrated to me on the cross. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. Where was I? If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, it will cost you. The price that we must pay is our affections for this world. And I don't remember who... who, uh, who said this. I wrote the, the quote down, but I never wrote the guy's name. But I, I think what he said is true. Uh, the choice we face is not, as many imagine, between heaven and hell. The choice is not between heaven and hell. Rather, the choice is between heaven and this world. Even a fool would exchange hell for heaven. But only the wise will exchange this world for heaven. 
The, the, the choice is costly, but I can tell you, not just from the testimony of the scriptures, but even from personal experience, Christ is infinitely more satisfying, infinitely more worthy our, of our affections than anything this world has to offer. We cannot let fear of man or love of the world choke this out. So my prayer, my hope for, my, for me, for my family, and for this church is this, that each of us would not only be ready, but would be eager to leave that which is familiar and comfortable for that which is true and right. My, my prayer is that this church would be filled with people who would be ready and eager to leave that which is familiar and comfortable for that which is true and right. St. Ignatius said, I would rather die on behalf of Jesus Christ than inherit the ends of the earth. May that be said of us. May that be said of our devotion and our allegiance to Christ. Let's finish up. Let's go to verse 44, and we're going to read the rest of the passage, and we'll make a few comments and be done. And Jesus cried out and said, and by the way, it just said like two or three verses earlier, he went and hid himself and left, right? And then it says, and Jesus cried out and said, who's he crying out to? Um, again, I'm, I think what John does here is he finishes this section of his book. I think what he's doing is at, at this last six verses or so, he's summing up everything Jesus said basically in the last three years. Okay, so John doesn't give us this little section. You know, it's not bound by time or by place or by audience because I think what, Jesus, what John is doing here is he's basically summing up and saying, this is eternal truth. Okay, so, so hold on. So we understanding that this is basically Jesus' summary of his message over three years. Let's read it with that level of you know, seriousness, okay? Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as lights that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken... Excuse me. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Okay, being that this is the summary, there's a lot that could and should be said here. But for time's sake, I'm just going to point out three very brief things. Um, basically, what Jesus points out here is the gospel. It's the good news. He points out revelation. Uh, judgment and salvation. Revelation, judgment, and salvation. First, he says revelation. Uh, he, you see in verse 44 and uh, 45, he says basically that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Um, God has revealed himself to us through Jesus Christ. We've, we've talked before about uh, that Russian cosmonaut decades ago who went up into heaven. He was an atheist, or heaven. Went up into the heavens, stars, right? He went up into uh, space, right, to the heavens, and he came back and was quoted. He kind of made a little quip. He said, uh, he said yeah, I went up there. I, didn't see, I looked around, I didn't see God anywhere. Okay, and he was just, you know, kind of ragging on people who believe, you know, God is up there somewhere. Right? he was an atheist. But C.S. Lewis, who was, who was still alive at that time, made a comment that he said, that's not how you go, that's not how you see God. He said, that's like saying that, you know, the, the characters in a play, um, you know, just go up to the attic to find Shakespeare, right? You know, the, the character of Hamlet, just go up in the attic and find Shakespeare. That's not how it works. The only way that the characters in Hamlet can know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. And that's exactly what God has done. God wrote himself into this story. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. You follow me? God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Jesus says the very same thing all throughout his, his message. He says in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
And this is central to our faith. This is, you know, shows the uniqueness of Christianity because so many in our world today will say, well, you know, we all really believe in the same God. We're all really worshiping the same God. It's merely semantics. And so you just call it a different name. You call it, all, you know, I call it Allah, you call it Jesus, you call it whatever, okay? Um, it's all basically uh, the, the same God. But if you believe Jesus' words here to be true, we cannot, th- th- that cannot be true. That cannot be right. Because Jesus is here is saying, if you, believe, if you want to believe in the Father, you believe in me. If you want to see the Father, you see me. In another place, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. In 1 John chapter 2, Jesus says, or uh, John, rather, John says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So here's the principle. Um, God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ, and what you do with Jesus is ultimately the test of what you've done with God. Okay? You, you, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you can't have God as your Father. Okay? This is revelation. God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. If you want to go to the Father, you come through Christ. Second, though, he says there's judgment. I told you, this is a fun day. Uh, so there is judgment. Verse 47 and 48, he says, If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. This is kind of confusing. It took me uh, several hours of study to try to get to the bottom exactly of what Jesus said. I'm going to try to help you guys see it in two, two minutes. Um, he, let me tell you first what he's not saying. When he says that, you know, I, I'm not, I haven't come to judge, I've come to save, you know, I, it's the word that will judge you on the last day. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying that he's not going to be present on judgment day. Right? He told us in John 5, he's going to be present. He says, the Father has given me all authority to judge. That's what he said in John 5. Um, here is what he's saying. When he says, the word that you have heard will judge you on the last day, here's what I think he's saying. The words that you have heard, the stuff that you know, the truth that you know, that will be the criteria on which you will be judged. That's the criteria. So, for example, I, uh, a while ago I shared, uh, a family, I shared the gospel with a family member. I called them up and I said, you know, I, I really love you. I've got to share this with you. Um, and I shared it with them. And then he said, you know, Philip, I'm sorry. I just cannot believe in a God who would, uh, you know, judge somebody for, for disobeying a message or a law that they'd never heard. I cannot believe in a God who would condemn a man who lives out in Brazil in these, you know, you know, uh, tribal jungle somewhere, right? Um, or uh, the tribe in the jungle somewhere who has never heard of God's law. How could I believe in a God who would condemn somebody who disobeyed a law they had never heard? And I said, yeah, man, I don't believe in a God that would do that either. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't believe that either. Because God does, that's exactly what Jesus just said. God, that's not what God does. God, judge, God judges us according to the words that we have heard, according to the truth that we know. And if you're questioning me here, say with me, wait, wait for it. Paul says the very same thing in Romans 2. He expands on this quite a bit. He, but Paul also says in Romans 2 that in our heart of hearts, the law has been written. We're judged according to the truth that we know, but according to, to Paul in Romans 2, in our heart of hearts, whether or not we admit it, we all, we all affirm the most fundamental truths of the law, which is honor God and do right to your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. Honor God and do right to your neighbor. Deep in our hearts, every single person understands on some level that there is something that has created us to whom we owe our allegiance. Um, and this is where it gets a little painful because 
Um, if it's true that everyone knows to some degree God's truth, therefore everybody stands con- condemned because nobody follows it. Nobody completely honors God and completely does right to our neighbor. So Jesus says the same, here, same thing here that Paul says, that we are without excuse. There is none with, with excuse. We will be judged according to what we know and the opportunities that we had, and basically all of us have the law written on our hearts. Francis Schaeffer, um, uh, a few decades ago, um, had this great illustration. I loved it. He, he, he says, uh, he says imagine, imagine it like this. He says, imagine that everybody has a tape recorder hanging around their neck, and every time that you use phrases using the word should right, or ought, like those kind of statements, you should do this, you should do that, they shouldn't have done that, they should have acted this way. Anytime you make those kind of statements, you know, with the word should, you know, the tape recorder hits record and then it records you. Basically what he's saying is that, uh, first he's saying basically that everybody has some idea of right and wrong, some uh, uh, knowledge of truth, some understanding of truth. And he says, this is what Schaefer says, he said, if you think about it, Even if you were to set aside the holy requirements of God, for a minute, just set aside the holy standard of God. If The terrifying reality is that if if God takes our tape recorder on the last day at Judgment Day and he pushes play, they should have done this, they shouldn't have done that, whatever. Take away the holy requirements and God pushes play on your tape recorder and judges us according to our standard of right and wrong. According to the standard that we use to judge others, there is no way we'll stand. You follow me? Jesus, you know, he's saying, I'm not, you've never heard the Ten Commandments? I'm not going to base you, you know, judge you based on the Ten Commandments. I'm going to judge you on the law that you do know, and the law is written on your heart. I'll judge, so he's saying, the words that you have heard I will, is what will judge you on the last day. I'm going to let the truth that you do know stand and judge you on that last day. And I told you, this is terrifying um, because we've all broken the law. Even if we don't know the ins and outs of the Ten Commandments, we've all broken the law. But as I said, these painful words that are are said here are meant for our health. The sad words are meant for our good. Uh, Because Jesus uh, says one more thing here. He says there is salvation. He has come that we might be saved. You know, this, this really echoes what he said in John 3. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Um, and we love that. It's like, yes, he's not going to condemn us. He's come to save us. But you know that if you read the rest of John chapter 3, um, he says, I'm not here to condemn you because you already are, you're already condemned. You've been, you've been condemned since the beginning. Since sin entered into the world, you stand condemned. I've come to save you. Um, and this is exactly what he's saying here. He, he says that he's come that we might be saved. Verse 47, I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Verse 49, he says the Father sent him to declare eternal life. In other words, Yes, God is just, and the judgment must come for our sin. But as Paul says in Romans, he says God is both just and he's the one who justifies. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? God is the, both just and he's the one who justifies. In other words, God is judged, but he also made himself the one who is judged. Um, and how did he do it? He referenced, it was referenced earlier by John. John quotes Isaiah back in verse 38. Um, uh, when, when he does that, when he quotes he quotes uh, two things out of Isaiah, but the first one that he quotes is out of Isaiah 53. Um, let me read to you what, what comes right after what John just quoted. Uh, it says, Isaiah said, He was despised, he being the suffering servant, Jesus, he was despised and rejected. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was a man of sorrows, a wash in suffering, but he carried our sorrows. He was smitten, he was afflicted, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
Jesus took our judgment for us. This, is, this was the plan. This is what God has been leading up to for centuries and centuries. This is what John 1 through 12 has been leading us towards, and we're almost there. God, this has been God's plan from the beginning. One of my favorite pictures of the way that he's pointed people to this um, is in Exodus 17. I already referenced when the Israelites you know, were complaining against Moses and complaining against God. There's this time when you know, the Israelites uh, you know, complained, you know, Moses, we're thirsty. You let us out here to die. You know, why did you do this? Your God must not be able to take care of us. Your God must be a fraud. We want to go back to Egypt. Uh, and they actually, they want, to, they want to kill Moses. They want to stone Moses for taking him out there. Uh, and so Moses goes to God and, and, and cries out for you know, help. And what, what does God do? He says to Moses, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the Israelites to the rock. And I want you to assemble the elders before them. And I want you to bring your rod. And what we have to see in, that, in, this, in this story is that what God is doing is basically he's establishing a court setting. He, he, he's, he's setting up court. There's going to be a, a, a trial that's going to happen. He says, assemble the elders, bring the rod, and bring the people out front. And so you can just imagine um, that Moses is thinking, okay, somebody's about to get punished. Right? The, the Israelites are finally going to get a spanking. Right? Because Moses, he says, Moses, get your rod. Remember, the rod is, is, is a, a symbol of judgment, a symbol of authority. Moses gave, uh, God gave Moses that rod to use you know, in Egypt to bring down the plagues and bring down the curses. It was, a, it was a symbol of God's authority, a symbol of God's judgment. So Moses is thinking, okay, their people are going to get punished for their stubbornness, for their disbelief. God brings them all out. But then God says, or Moses brings them all out. But then God says to Moses, he says, I will stand before the people on the rock. And I've heard it said that there is no other place in the Bible where it says that God stands before the people. Every other place, always, people stand before God. But in this, in God, God's about to paint a picture for us. God stands before the people. And he says, I'll stand before the people on the rock. Take the rod, strike the rock where, I stand, where I'm standing. Bring down the rod of judgment on the rock where I am. And Moses does... And what happens? Water comes gushing out of the rock, comes pouring out of the rock. God blesses them. He quenches their thirst. I mean, do you, do you see this amazing picture that God paints for us? God stood on the rock and he took, somebody had to be punished for our sins. Somebody had to be punished for Israel's rebellion and their rejection. God took the punishment. He was struck for them. Jesus Christ is the judge who has left the bench and come and taken the place of the criminal. Judgment is necessary for every person here. But what it means is that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have believed in him, then your judgment took place at the cross when Jesus Christ was struck. That's what Isaiah 53 talks about. If you keep reading, it talks about how his back was struck. The same wording that was used back there with the rock in Exodus. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then your judgment is in the past your judgment has already taken place. That's the good news of the gospel. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Through his death, we can have life. So the question is, how have we responded? Have we been like the many who, regardless of the signs that Jesus gave, sign after sign after sign, still reject him? Or have we been like the authorities who believe in him intellectually, but out of a fear of man and a love for the world, have never let Christ move from our head to our hearts. It's never actually changed us. Or have we surrendered heart and soul to Jesus Christ? Have we let him wash us? Have we come into the light, let him see our stains, cleanse our stains, and are we walking in the light? This is what we're called to today. 
while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Amen? Let's pray.